Oh, I'm not sure what's happened there. Hello everyone, hello, I'm Tim Worthington. While they're fixing the projector, we're going to be taking a look at a couple of rarely seen cult classics from the archives. Well, alright, it's another of those compilations of highlights of some of our old podcasts. This time they're from a short-lived cult film show presented by Ben Baker and quite conveniently Ben has got a new film-themed quiz book out at the moment called The Long Quiz Goodnight and it's really quite fun. If you like Richard Herring's emergency questions books then you'll definitely like this. There's lots of interesting rounds in there but Ben will tell you more about that later on. For the moment here's a couple of extracts from that show. First up there's me talking to Ben about the whole video nasties phenomenon. And then Gareth F. Hirons tells us all about the strange world of Godzilla. Don't forget that you can hear Ben and Gareth in a couple of editions of Looks Unfamiliar at timworthington.org. But now, on with the show. Nasties, which is a name possibly, if you're outside a certain age, you possibly know the term, but don't actually know what the hell it was all about. I mean, because most people these days don't know what video is, let's well, be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, video nasties, basically, it's come to mean scary films, but it's a bit more specific than that, isn't it? Yes, and it actually refers to a certain group of films at a certain point in time, which have become sort of enshrined in popular culture as the video nasties. And it's rather a convoluted story behind it, but basically you have to go, you don't literally have to go back in time to the 70s. And at the very end of the 70s, that's when people say home video first appeared in 78, 79. There had actually been domestic video recorders available since the kind of the mid 60s. And But the first time that most people, because it was really only sort of techie nerds that had those early reel to reel videos. Yeah, yeah. And then. Also, in, I imagine they were stupidly expensive. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, apparently the tapes cost nearly as much as the average weekly wage at that point but, hell. but in the late 70s it suddenly became the technology became available to make it a really serious business with like a cassette based system and relatively you know small and compact machines although when you go to one of those early VHS or Betamax machines <laughs> they weigh a ton they suddenly became very big business and there had to be obviously because video rental was the, the main attraction of it you know people going to the yeah. Again, it's something that's sort of dying out. People going to the local video shop and renting a tape for the night and watching it. But yeah. but in those days, it, they were prohibitively expensive, the tapes. There was a, a vacuum that had to be filled because there weren't, obviously, you know, the machines became available with not many tapes available to rent for them. But the problem was that at that point, a lot of the major distributors, you know, like MGM and so on, wanted nothing to do with video because they still made an incredible amount of money from selling the rights to films to television stations. Uh, it yeah, really yeah. was a real money spinner back then in a way yeah. that it hasn't been for a long time. And that you know, that's why the big film always got premiered on Christmas Day. Yeah. And, you know, with massive publicity because they had to make back the money they'd spent <laughs> yeah. for it somehow. So most video companies were more or less run out of people's bedrooms. You know, a lot of them were run by people who worked in the film industry who saw, yeah. you know, there was an opportunity and thought, right, well, I'm going to put out some tapes. And the problem was, as well, because the major studios weren't going to release their titles, that they had to start looking elsewhere. And so it was generally the turn towards American low-budget cinema and European cinema. Okay. And this was... It resulted in a lot of interesting stuff coming out. Because you go into your local video shop and... You know, there'd be all kinds of bizarre kung fu movies and science mm. fiction and 
people forget as well that this was kind of the making of people like Sylvester Stallone and so on, who were doing moderately well, but not megastars. And it was with their films sort of being bought in cheaply and released in the UK for rental that they, they really started to get international interest. Yeah. Things like Caddyshack, <laughs> The Terminator were kind of, as mainstream films go, they were the bottom rung. Yeah. And it was home video that kind of propelled them upwards. But as well as that, they tended, for various reasons, the distributors to pick up films that were not quite what UK audiences would have been used to or expecting at that point. And there is kind of a lot of context to that, because the 70s was quite a difficult time for the British border film classification, because they, they got bombarded with a lot of you know, very high-profile, very mainstream films, all the way from The Devils in 1970 to Life of Brian in 79, where, Mm. you know, there was no way they could be banned or, in most cases, even cut. Yeah, it was quite a difficult time because, you know, these films couldn't be blocked from release, really. It wasn't realistic, but when they came out, the British Border Film Classification came in for a real battering from, from the press, from feminist groups, from Mary Whitehouse and politicians... And so they had a habit of anything that wasn't so high profile that was a bit contentious was basically just banned outright mostly. Yeah. And so a logjam had built up of films from, again, mainly from Italy, mainly from America, where they'd just been sort of sitting around with, you know, with distributors, but with no hope of release. Yeah. And suddenly, when video came on, because video wasn't covered by any of the laws, basically (laughs) videos had the same kind of legal status as a book. And you could put out whatever you want. And another problem oh, okay. was that because these distributors, you know, were running their companies as second business, half the time they didn't know what the hell they were buying the rights to. Yeah. And suddenly I'm guessing all this big job lots of yes, a lot of it was up. job lots. Yeah. And suddenly you had all this, for the time, quite near the knuckle stuff appearing in video shops. Yeah. And eventually, you know, there started to be a lot of campaigning, a lot of trouble. There were only really seven or eight films that were really problematic, I'd say. But, Mm. as always happens, these things always snowball. And the director of public prosecution started drawing up a list of titles that he considered might be open to prosecution under the Obscene Publications Act. Yeah. And this list, which changed a lot over the two or three years it was around for, became known as the Video Nasties list. So, and that's sort of when the term became... Yeah, bizarrely, it did actually originate in the Times, because a reporter had been to a video trade fair and was... This is something I've no doubt we'll cover at great length in a couple of minutes, but he was quite repulsed by the covers of some videos he saw yeah. and he used the term video nasties in a quite serious article more bemoaning the you know the lack of packaging standards than you know the actual content of the films themselves yeah. but yeah. that was kind of taken up as a clarion call particularly by Mary Whitehouse and particularly by the Daily Mail no. and of it course. soon became the accepted term there's been some kind of myth grown up over the years that you know, the the video nasties were kind of obscure, that not many people saw them, that were very hard to get hold of, that, you know, and it was mm. only sort of sick freaks who watched them, but they were they were absolutely massive. They were amongst the biggest titles of their day. 
Yeah. I remember as a child seeing some of them in the rental section of WH Smiths, and you can't get much more. You know, uh, here's here's your latest hits than that. Can't you? <laughs> <laughs> I know one film that is on the Video Nasty's list that I know a lot about is The Evil Dead, Sam Raimi's original. That was huge at the time, wasn't it? it sold at a time where videos must have cost a fortune as well sold in huge numbers oh yeah and when you consider it it being it being out legitimately in the cinema about a year before that and it had done absolutely nothing i think basically jonathan ross had been to see it yeah. and that was it but on video yeah it was absolutely gigantic but i'm guessing not every film really had quite so much of a glimmer in its eye no and here's the crux of the problem is that the the video nasties list encompassed all kinds from and some are really really good films that you can't understand what there was such a problem about with them. So, uh, other than The Evil Dead, what are the titles people might know? The kind of the big ones were Driller Killer, which despite its title uh, really didn't belong with the others. No, um, no it's weird, weirdly art house type thing. And weirdly unviolent as well. Mm. And uh, there's a very odd thing that I remember reading when I was a kid about, you know, a feminist group had gone round burning video shops that had it on display. That well, but, what? he kills men. That's he ludicrous. kills men in it. The other main ones are zombie flesh eaters, which again is the kind of fish out of water. Cannibal Holocaust. I spit on your grave. It's worth bearing in mind also that these weren't mostly yeah. the original titles of the films. That a lot of them were retitled by. UK distributors, but then beyond that you start to get things like Tenebrae, which is an Italian detective thriller and a very, very well done one. The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue, which is a British horror film. Quite a few older films, isn't there? This isn't it's just stuff that was made in the early 80s, it wasn't new. Oh, no, no, yeah. There was, going back to the might have been 1961, I think, Blood Feast by Herschel Gordon Lewis, who's now sort of mm. quite a famous cult director, where you know, there's there's nothing actually that nasty about that. It's like a, it was made as a driving film. You know, yeah. to have teenagers go in you know parking lots, and you know there's a lot of very silly, I call it young one style gore in it. There's Wes Craven's Last House on the Left from oh, yeah. 1972, which is one that always gets forgotten, but that was one of the most targeted ones mm. at the time because I think that's that's gained some kind of respectability since then. It's worth pointing out that a good three-quarters list are really poor rip-offs of Alien, Dawn of the Dead, and Friday the 13th. Uh, and, you yeah, know, they're slasher not really sort of worth dwelling on quite a lot of them. Not yeah. because they're particularly offensive, but just because that's awful. Bobbins. <laughs> you, know, you find that when people start debating the video nasties, they go for the same titles again and again, the same yeah. 20 to 25. It's never the full... You see, that's another thing, is there, there were supposedly 72 titles in total on the list, but mm. even dedicated researchers tend to argue about whether the there were as few as 60 or as many as 76. Okay. So given that even all this way down the line with so much evidence, you know, people are actually interested can't agree on that. You can see that it was it was quite a confused situation at the time. Yeah, and also I suspect quite a few like distributors and that actually wanted to say, oh no, we're one of them because there was such a cashier that came with it. Yes, definitely. Well, I think, I think the tide turned after a while when they started getting prosecuted. They changed their tune dramatically, and at, at mm. that point, 
a lot of them did withdraw their most contentious titles and went to the BBFC and said, look, can you cut this as if we were bringing it out in the cinema mm. and we'll then release that version on video? Yeah. Which, as it later happened, those certificates no longer stood when the Video Recordings Act came in, which basically sought to outlaw the nasties. Yeah. But that did happen after a while, that, you know, they started to pull back a bit. But at first, they really went over the top to get people's attention, which brings us round to the covers. Well, yeah, I was going to say that, I mean, the covers is probably, you know, almost 90% of what stands out to anyone who remembers the era. Oh, yeah, and quite often... like the aforementioned Driller Killer, which is iconic and the truly unpleasant Cannibal Holocaust I can't even uh, look at that, that one, yeah, that's which isn't really it'd be, it'd be less scary if it was real but it's a painting and I, I'm not Google it, actually don't don't Google <laughs> don't, it, don't Google it. no no. but for the, for the benefit of the curious it's like kind of a tribesman just stuffing his face with very dubious looking meat with mm. a crazed look on his face and like hair flying about wildly yeah and that, like many others, doesn't actually really... Re- now, d- don't get me wrong, I'm not saying go out and watch the film, because I do not recommend that at all. No, and there are plenty of disturbing awful. images in it to match that, but it doesn't quite reflect the content of the film itself, and most yeah. of these covers didn't. Mm. Uh, there's, there's a story that a lot of them were commissioned from art students who were basically just told, do something eye-catching, yeah. and, you know, hadn't seen the films, and just came up with their own interpretation based on the title, which, again, you know in a lot of cases, wasn't the original title. But then, yeah. really, only about two of the titles on the list had what you might call a restrained cover. In the first five years of video in the UK, up to the introduction of the Video Recordings Act, there were really only a couple of thousand videos available. And yeah. I believe there are people out there who've, who've managed to collect all of them. So, you know, it is a, it was a finite thing. And... Uh. You know, yeah. everything was sort of lumped in together. There was no... You know, if, if HMV had had a video section in those days, there wouldn't have been, you know, anime, world cinema, general interest. Everything would have been lumped together. Bambi next to the Beast in Heat, presumably. <laughs> Beast in Heat, another one on the uh, on the list. Yes. Yeah, uh, uh, and one that provides great amusement <laughs> to me and you, too. Yeah, you've seen it, I haven't. I, I just find it an incredibly funny title. Indeed, most of these have got <laughs> ridiculous well, titles. What's even funnier, listeners, is that a couple of years ago, for Ben's birthday card, I decided to do a mock-up of an imagined sequel called The Beast in Space. And I googled for it and found that there actually was a sequel called The Beast in Space, where the beast, I don't know, steals a rocket or something, (laughs) and goes goes to save mankind, I believe. As uh, you mentioned a few times in regard to a list, there are 70 so... But didn't that get whittled down even more? Well, it kind of did, because a lot of the prosecutions started failing, and the, the tide really turned when there's a company called VTC Video who put out, again, this is one of the real weird inclusions on the list, a film called Possession, which was an Italian art house film, so it was going to be quite gruesome, but it was very big budget. It had Isabella Gianni and Sam Neill, as the stars of it, so it wasn't oh, okay. exactly in, sort of scrounging around in the mud. Yeah. 
all there was to take offence to in it was it was a I can't you know one of those sort of psychosexual melodramas that were ten a penny around then about mm. a woman who's going mad and thinks she might be having an affair with an alien, <laughs> which is do. a sort of like octopoid thing. And there's a oh, couple of like if I had a penny for every that... time I'd seen <laughs> that plot line come up on EastEnders. Well, there's a couple of not very explicit sex scenes between them, but you know, in tabloid speak, that is woman has sex with octopus, which you know, <laughs> even just saying that it sounds a bit different to the film looks. Mm-hmm. They were prosecuted. They somehow managed to turn the tables where it went from them being prosecuted for putting this video out to them almost suing the director of public prosecutions for libel and succeeding Mm. in getting it legally removed from the list. So, you know, that's where the confusion really sort of starts to begin. But then a lot of others started being found not guilty. I mean, the big one was The Evil Dead, where basically this was when the wheels fell off the whole thing was when it came to trial they had an enormous battery of witnesses palace video you know waiting to speak in favor of it from sam raimi actually came over he was going to talk okay. sandy shaw who was married to the managing director a couple of broadsheet film critics i believe barry norman was as well okay. but none of them got the chance to take the stand because within the opening minutes the judge said he very rarely in this sort of case that he'd been out to see it for himself to judge it for himself yeah and he watched it and then he phoned the bbfc who said it had the certificate they'd been out in the cinema and he said this was a waste of public money and they should never have come to trial and he (laughs) reprimanded the dpp and that's that's when it's kind of but even though the video recordings had to come in by then that's when kind of the the furore stopped, but a lot of others were found not guilty, including some surprising ones. So they they got struck from the list. So in the end, the you know the ultimate list was 39 titles, and I think a lot of them was simply that they hadn't come to trial yet. Some of them yeah. were found guilty of obscenity, and maybe rightly so. Uh, I mean, you say about the prosecutions, it's very odd, very bitty, I understand. So basically, different towns found different things offensive. Oh, yeah, and another thing is maybe that a lot a lot of the distributors probably just rolled over, you know, couldn't afford the legal costs and just said, OK, guilty, don't send me to jail. Though somebody did go to jail, actually. One of the ones that was successfully prosecuted was a film called Nightmares in a Damaged Brain, which doesn't sound very nice. It was originally called Nightmare mm. in America. But that was one of the first to be prosecuted. It sounds like it was a very, very biased trial because the company that released it was run by somebody who who was a porn baron. You know, there's no getting around that. But he appeared to be quite interested, you know, in horror films just as a fan. And over the years, he did try in the early 70s to get Last House on the Left released. Okay. And he actually actually wrote to the BBFC saying, I've taken out the most violent scenes because I think it's a good enough film without them. And they still said no. But he seems to have had genuine intent, as though his video company was an attempt to go legit, because there was very okay. little of his adult films on them, and there's stuff like, you know, like, Learning to Drive and David Soul in Concert. <laughs> yeah. Well, as you say, that, that weird era of pre-certification, it's just, you know, everything's dirty and illegal from... <laughs> but, well, yeah, that that's absolutely true. I think, actually, there's something about pre-digital technology that seems... You know, just before everything went digital, it seems a lot sleazier than mm. what came after. I mean, the whole thing about videotapes—they look kind of, kind of tacky. Yeah. The boxes the tapes came in were often quite scuzzy by the time you rented them. The tapes so, were damaged. Those big, chunky, thick, old yeah, video yeah. shop boxes you used to get. I can see my Eat the Rich one from here, and it's big enough for a family of four to live in. 
<laughs> and they'd probably be more entertaining than Eat the Rich, actually. <laughs> but yeah, there was this kind of sleaziness about it, which I think added to the whole thing. I mean, yeah. you know, most of these films are available on DVD now, and nobody bats an eye. There's much worse stuff available on DVD, and it doesn't seem as big a deal for some reason. It's DVD, it looks cleaner, it loops nicely back to the menu. That's a, I think that's a real key thing, is that watching them on video in the UK in the early 80s, that's a real sort of out of context thing, because most people by the time it finished, there'd be nothing on telly that night, after the point they finished watching, because TV still closed down overnight. There'd yeah. just be a, a copyright notice and fuzzy stuff at the end of the tape. That's quite a note to end on. You know, it was a, it was a whole new way of watching films that people weren't used to. To use Last House on the Left for an example, that was deliberately made. It was Wes Craven's mm. second film, his first one was a, a soft porn one where basically before the early 70s, drive-in cinema in America, which is it's a tradition we don't really have here, which you know makes the whole thing even more alien. You know, it was mainly about monster movies and so on. But Wes Craven made a soft porn film deliberately targeted to drive-in audiences, which went down really well. And the backers who backed that said, OK, now go away and make a horror film. Yeah. And so it was made quite intentionally to have, you know, carloads of teenagers jumping up and down, screaming whenever David Hess comes on. And it's not quite the same if, you know, you're one or two people watching it <laughs> in a dreary front room. I'm much more interested in the phenomenon than the films in yeah. 99% of the cases because it's emblematic of something that doesn't really happen anymore, which is nowadays, if something is banned, you can get it just like that. Yeah. But that really, the Video Nasties scare, along with things like Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Hardwick House, stuff like that, was the, the last gasp of things actually being banned and meaning it. And, you know, if you're young, when something is, you know, denied, it can't help but gain iconic yeah, status. It's, in it's, it's just a clarion call to get hold of it. Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. It was still quite hard, even in the late 80s, to get hold of most of these films. You had to know a, a mate who knew a mate who knew a mate. Well, and as well as that, I mean, part of the DPP's war against them was that the police would just seize huge numbers of the tapes and burn them. OK. And, you know, almost burn them out of existence. I'm led to believe that a couple of the more obscure titles, like Island of Death and, of course, The Beast in Heat, there's only... A couple of dozen copies known to still exist oh. of the the preserved version, and presumably in the hands of serious collectors. Yes, yeah. But also, there's brilliant footage of all these video shop owners. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, don't have a clue what's going on, and they go, like, "Oh, yeah. I'd never have nasties on my manor son while they're standing in front of the shelves, just groaning under the weight <laughs> of them." Mary Whitehouse did arrange a screening of excerpts and some of the worst titles to MPs. Which, you know, is kind of dubious in itself if you're just saying, look at this bit. Out of you know, I, th I think that's how yeah. a lot of the more surprising films ended up on the list, is somebody said, this happens in it. Mm. And, you know, they ended up on that. But she did that. But then a couple of months later, Channel 4 did a documentary where it was actually arguing against the availability of these films. And it included what I'm led to believe were relatively tame clips from a couple. But Mary Whitehouse wrote to the IBA to try and get stop them from showing it. Yeah. As though they're allowed their campaign, but nobody else is from any other yeah. respectable platform. And like I say, there is that astonishing, I think it is question time footage, a professor from some university being shouted down by 
anti-campaigners. Now, I'm not saying I'm mm. unsympathetic to their cause, but, you know, have a bit of manners, please. Yeah. You know, they're just saying rubbish and, excuse me, yeah. whenever he tries to open his mouth. For sure. There is something willfully perverse as well about someone being paid by the viewers and listeners association to go through all of these films and cut out the really gruesome bits and stick them together. Yeah. And also there's the whole thing about, well, how come it doesn't deprave and corrupt them? Because they've got Jesus, obviously. <laughs> so the Video Recordings Act came in in, uh, is it 84? Yes, it was 1984, yeah. Rather opposite, really. Yeah. You know, that it should be 1984 because it was quite a draconian piece of legislation mm. and it led to a couple of years of real uncertainty where things would happen. Like, for example, Videodrome, the David Cronenberg film, yeah. had been out in the cinema and done reasonably well, but then it was submitted for video certification in a very heavily cut version. Mm. And the BBFC actually contacted the distributors and said, What's going on? And they said, Well, We've read the Video Recordings Act and we think, you know, this bit and that bit and the other bit fall foul of it. Mm. There was a politician, I think it might be Austin Mitchell at the time, who described it as like using a sledgehammer to crack a nut. And that is, the wording of it exactly fits that description. Mm. It is, you must not have this, you must not have this. Mm. And it then led to things like, because there was a clause about regard being shown to the effect on children viewing in the home which yeah. meant that for years and years the exorcist wasn't available yeah because it yeah. was considered not unreasonably that if you know if a young girl got hold of it and watched this young girl being possessed that you know she might be disturbed and yeah there was nothing the bbfc could do as far as they were concerned that was the law hmm. and it also you know it deliberately prohibited for a long time most of the nasties from coming back out a few did creep out a couple of years later. I think the first one was in 86, Zombie Creeping Flesh, which, you know, is one of the milder type. I think that came out in a slightly cut version in 1986, so, you know, you would have seen Phil Cool queuing for a copy. The <laughs> <Cannabis> Citrus Spring. <laughs> Waiting for Hardwick House to start, you know. <laughs> Listening to the House Martins. <laughs> yeah, there were, there were only a handful, up to and including when The Evil Dead came out again in, I think it was very early 1990. Oh, okay. And uh, by the mid 90s, there were a couple of sort of specialist companies kind of more or less putting them back out under the radar. But mm. even then, I remember there was one particular company who had, had to put on the back of a lot of them, you know, a sort of legal notice detailing the various prosecutions and so on. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't even written like a sort of, you know, dramatic, you must see this film, it is Teban's. It was actually, you know, covering their own backs. And there was another yeah. one who used the original titles and put them in sort of generic black and white sleeves. Okay. But it's only really when DVD rolled around that the, you know, original, uncut, problematic ones started to come out. Yeah, which by that point, I suppose, it just became almost archive, you know, just nonsense. You know, just oh, like, yeah. Uh, no, think, no one's think... going to be bothered by that. There's far worse things. I think most of them have been superseded by, you know, what's come since. I mean, there was Keith Farr's MP, who I think I can get away with saying this. I consider him a bit of a bandwagon jumper who doesn't really do his research before opening his mouth. Mm. Um, I think that's legally acceptable, isn't it? Uh, allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. 
apparently he noticed, I think it was SS Experiment Camp, Cannibal Holocaust, and I Spit on Your Grave were in the 3 for 10 in HMP. (laughs) But he raised a question in Parliament about it, and the BBFC hit back with a brilliant statement, which explained in great detail that they considered these films were dated and were really of interest to genre enthusiasts only. And it said, said at the end, also we are not aware of the cannibal and zombie films happening in real life. <laughs> well, I suppose it, it brings uh, the fact that when these things were banned or not available, it just made them more exciting, it made them more creepy, and made them more, you know, oh, yeah, catnip no, I mean, to kids. I think there's that thing that never goes away that. You know, when I, a couple of years ago, I finally saw some bits of one of the really obscure ones, Devil Hunter, which I don't know why that was on the list. It's basically, it's a a Chuck Norris-style action film Mm. about somebody fighting, you know, sort of supernaturally-powered madman on the loose in the desert. As you do. But even though, you know, there's nothing to it, I still found myself feeling a little bit jittery. Hmm. You know, because it still had that enormous stigma attached to yeah. it. Yeah, but kids love that. You know, they love <laughs> what they're not meant to. Oh yeah, to be yeah. Watching. Well, that was one of the big sort of you know got up the tabloids' noses at the time was this idea that legions of children were renting them out, which I have some scepticism about. There are some elements of that which I think may ring true, but at the same time, I remember people in the playground talking about films they'd supposedly seen, which when I later saw them. Yeah, the description was a bit, a little... You clearly hadn't. ...exaggerated, <laughs> yeah. Version of the truth, yeah. I think maybe, you yeah. know, like an older cousin had seen them and told them about it. And then, you know, they also have some doubt that even the most unscrupulous video shop owners would really have willingly rented them to children. Mm. Although, on the other hand, I do know people who watched a couple with their family before the furore started, as though it was just yeah. a... You know, it was just film. a film they got out. And on the other hand, there are reliable accounts of, you know, elderly people going to the video shop saying, I'd like one of these nasties, please. I'd like to see what the fuss is all about. So it, it was the other extreme. It was the pensioners that were... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one goes on about them. Yeah, I mean, also, you know, kids lie. They say what people think they want to hear. They try to Dude, impress yeah. people. There was a um, very, very dubious situation where it was a semi-official parliamentary group set up to do research as the problem allegedly of children accessing these videos who basically they just did a checklist and sent it around to school saying get your pupils to tick what they've seen you know and it'd say like you know Bambi driller killer and you know even when the results came back it was things like things like the bogeyman that weren't you know the big ones that most of them claimed to have seen and the actual nasty nasties were you know about three percent had said had seen them but okay. even then one of the titles misprinted and the kids still ticked it. And so some academics who were quite furious about this, I mean, there is some suggestion that they'd originally been involved in this research group and had quit because they disapproved of the methods being used. They did their own rival study where they they threw in all kinds of fake titles like Vampire Holocaust and Zombies from Beyond Space and so on, which... Oh, there's not. <laughs> I've seen not them. As good I've as, definitely seen them. Not as good as Ninja <laughs> Demon, which the pupils of Grange Hill were obsessed with. Is that real? It's not real, but it was, ve- well, it no, was I mean, very real, real to the Grange gr- Hill cast. <laughs> there was a Grange Hill plot about... Video nasties that it, was, yeah. it, Oh, I'd love to see that. So the Ninja Demon thing was basically true, though, because on this, as many kids that have claimed to have seen the real titles and the original stuff, they claimed to have seen the fake ones. 
And, you yeah. know, it's not something that's been made up. There's actual, I think, from Panorama documentary footage of them lying. There was the video Nicey on Spitting Image where people were throwing up at a merchant ivory film. <laughs> there was there was a whole episode of the young ones of course yeah, where they, they get a video nasty. out and they plan to watch a nasty and have we got a video <laughs> the bbc attempted to disassociate themselves with the whole thing completely because famously they did the trailer for their release of videos of tom baker going about with video tasties and how, how you should ignore the nasties and go for the good life you know two overpriced episodes of the good life with the end credits cut off them 400 pounds obviously there was 39 films stroke 60 stroke video 72 nasties. stroke blah 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 well yeah but we, i mean you say it whittled down to that how many of those are still actually unavailable th- in any form i think it's around six or seven and apparently in most cases it's for rights reasons I mean, there's one called Blood Rights, where I think actually the print is missing and nobody can find it. And that's the reason that that's not back out. Most of them, it's just because nobody's resubmitted them because nobody knows who owns them. I mean, a a lot of these films can't have been made with, you know, financial gain in mind, really. That brings us around to something very interesting which has only come out in recent years, which is Dario Argento. People might know him better for a film called Suspiria. That wasn't caught up in the whole nasties thing, but it emerged more recently that there was what was called the Section 3 list, where the DPP found some obscure thing hidden in Section 3 of the Obscene Publications Act, which enabled Mm. him to draw up a list of videos that could be removed from shops that weren't open to prosecution. Now that's already starting to sound a bit sinister, isn't it? What? Yeah. yeah. Well, there were 80 or 90 titles on it, and some of them were, you know, cheap and nasty stuff, like Night of the Sea Gulls. That gap is very important. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what it's called. As well as that, I mean, there were things like, you know, there's quite mainstream stuff like Friday the 13th, Dawn of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead, Scanners, the David Cronenberg film. Above and beyond that, there was Shogun Assassin, which is martial arts, Chanter Jimmy Blacksmith, which is a costume drama, Extra, which is a British sci-fi film. Extras? Extras should 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 definitely ban Extras. (laughs) Inseminoid, which is another British sci-fi film. Kane's Cutthroats, which is a western. And most bizarre, Derek and Clive Get the Horn, the Peter Cook and Dudley Moore film. Which is, ah. there's a lot of bad language in that, but there is no violence, mm. no sex. Well, it's two men in a room. It's just two men <laughs> swearing, and the idea that somebody could say that has to go just because of some words, I find very Orwellian. Mm. I mean, yeah, I know, you know, it's it's what it's come up to thirty years since it was seized from video shops, but yeah. Which is, which is ironically scarier than the actual films themselves. Yeah, yeah. The well, the Derek and get the horn is scarier than the films themselves. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Just by the fact it exists. Yeah, it's not good. It's not their finest <laughs> hour, shall we say. <laughs> But again, available on DVD quite cheaply, you know, you can just... I think as a sort of concluding thing, something did need to be done, but not what was done. Mm. This was a real example of it going too far in both directions. I think the the original distributors went too far and really think they were untouchable. The campaigners and eventually the legislators went too far as well. Yeah. Just as a sort of amusing closing thing, one of the actors who played the film crew in Cannibal Holocaust stands a very good chance of becoming the next Italian Prime Minister. He's been active in politics for a long yeah. time now. 
and he's a serious challenge wow. to the. I mean, uh, can you imagine anything <laughs> like that happening? Well, actually, no. Ed Miliband's wife was in Hardwick House, so. <laughs> <laughs> which is which so is entirely equivalent. <laughs> from, well, that thing you were literally just listening to right there. This is a small ad that Tim has very kindly let me do for my new movie quiz book, The Long Quiz Good Night. It's my biggest collection yet and features stuff like the greatest opening lines in film, what the censors cut from your favourite flick, the weirdest cameos committed to celluloid, we say hooray for British films, there's a tribute to the biggest box office bombs, a look at which movie myths are actually true and which are a load of old tut, and we remember Neon and the great movie magazines of the 1990s. Adam and Joe's toy movies, Disney, movie siblings, biopics, Monty Python, depression, sequels, and great film years from 1964 to 2010, plus loads more! You can buy it now from www.benbakerbooks.co.uk, along with all my other titles. And sorry if you thought that just because this is a promotion for a film thing, I was going to slip into the boring local cinema restaurant ad parody that all things do. Well, if you think I'm going to do that, you've got another thing. The long quiz goodnight, Tandori and Trivia. Just three minutes away from this podcast. Oh Christ, what have I done? Do you like films? No, do you really, really like films? Or to put it another way, do you like films that I like? Do you want to read about, say, Elvis Presley films being shown by the BBC in the school holiday mornings? Or collecting Michael Caine film soundtracks? Or being spooked by the covers of Video Nasties on Business in the Video Shop? Or even about being attacked by some droogs outside the screening of a clockwork orange that didn't happen? If that's the case, and you'll be wanting to read Can't Help Thinking About Me by Tim Worthington. And that's just one section of it. More details, timworthington.org. Hey, hey! Do you like The Simpsons? Do you like history? Then listen to Retrospecticus. A Simpsons and history podcast. I'm Gareth Hirons. I'm Tom Williamson. I talk about an episode of The Simpsons. And I talk about an episode from history. Retrospecticus. The Simpsons and modern history together at last. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher and retrospecticus.org. <laughs> Films of Godzilla. Now, obviously, you don't mean the director Godzilla. I assume... No, not, not George Godzilla. <laughs> I assume he's not done some sort of indie stuff on the side, you know, like Garden State. <laughs> it's, his, it's his more mainstream kind of in front of the camera appearances that oh. I'll be looking at. So, it's, uh... so, of course, when you say Godzilla, you mean the awesome 1998 Roland American Dean Devlin classic flick. 
Absolutely, yes. I think that, to be honest, I, I don't really want to start on a bitter note. Um, <laughs> I think I think most fans of the Japanese Godzilla films will, will hold that film in exactly the same contempt as I do, certainly judging by internet reaction, which, of course, is always a fine indicator of everything in oh, life. Oh, indeed, so, of course. Uh, and uh, where would we be without it? That's mm. right, we'd be much happier. <laughs> so, <laughs> of course, uh, you mean the original Japanese Godzilla films. So, yes, yes. Uh, how did you get into that? Well, I had actually kind of had to think back about this. I've got to say that probably my earliest exposure to Godzilla was, and this is slightly shameful, but the Hanna-Barbera cartoon. It's about 78, isn't it? So, yeah. Yes, probably, yeah. Probably. And kind of translated over here in the kind of, well, not translated, literally, but came over here in the in the early 80s. And I remember even even as a child of four or five, thinking it was all great until Godzuki turned up. The theme song's going along brilliantly and, you know, crashing and smashing and so on and so forth. And, and then, yes, yes, comical winged dragon. <laughs> the scrappy-doo of Godzilla, which, uh, as we may touch on later, was actually unnecessary as he already had his own scrappy-doo. So uh, it's interesting that you've actually sort of touched upon the two main points that people who aren't into Godzilla necessarily will know, which is obviously the awful film remake in the 90s, <laughs> the cartoon, and obviously the third one is Man in a Rubber Suit. As a child, did that sort of thing appeal to you more because it was so Man in a Rubber Suit-esque? Or was it just the spectacle of it? I think it's a bit of both, really. and I, I, I do think you're a lot more able to suspend disbelief, obviously, when younger. And I, I think it's the, the memories of... I, I really... I, I wouldn't say I saw that many when I was younger, but I do remember seeing some. And the memory of that is kind of what spurred me on to rediscover it. There were a lot of things I found that kind of I liked up until a certain age and then for want of a better explanation Nirvana came along and I forgot about everything <laughs> for about three, four years kind of you know I, I didn't touch any computer games didn't watch any Godzilla and various things that, that just kind of went away at that time of music and suddenly uh, suddenly crept back in in the, in the late 90s yeah it was when I went to Reading Festival everyone was talking about in the queue for the Reading Festival did you see Destroy All Monsters last night I'd take the film just on its name not knowing what it was See, you say it's quite interesting to destroy all monsters, obviously, because most people would associate them with Godzilla versus thing, Godzilla versus another yes. man in a rubber suit. Well, that is what basically all of the films are, except for the first one, or Gajira, as it was in Japan, is surprisingly, for a film that does blatantly feature a man in a rubber suit destroying Tokyo, it's a very kind of sober and measured affair. There's some very good acting performances, because it is basically a muse on the atomic bombing that ended the war. But then, yeah, for the next one, it's just uh, he fights other monsters. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, it's quite terrifying when you think how close to Hiroshima. When is the uh, first Godzilla film? Well, it was made in 1954. I, I'm imagining it's set. I think it is set in the same period. So I nine think, years have passed. Yeah, not long at all. I think it was the first time such subjects were actually tackled in film. And obviously, as you can imagine, it's it's got to be something that was affecting the Japanese psyche at the time. The plotline in a nutshell is that, whereas in later films they would say that Godzilla was a, a dinosaur that was mutated by the atomic bomb, 
in this, he's a force of nature that's awakened by the atomic bomb. So anyway, he wakes up this legendary creature and comes and smashes Tokyo to pieces. And they have the chance to, I'm trying not to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it and wants to see it, the last third of the film, much as it all features monster rampages, also features the kind of agonizing choice that the scientists have to make about whether or not to, A, kill the only example of a Godzilla in the world, for all they know, and B, whether if they use this technology it could get into other people's hands and be used against mm. other humans. So the whole thing is... Yeah. <laughs> and then you look at the at the campy kind of early 70s ones, and you think, how do we get here? I think another of the problems with it, in this country particularly, less so in America, but it's, it's pretty hard to actually get the DVDs. I may be astoundingly wrong about this, but as far as I know, the only ones that have actually been officially released in the European DVD region, is it region 2? We are region 2. I'm not very good at this, unless I'm using Is the original one, and the 1998 American one. So they're very much running the gamut there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to track them down. I've got, got a big, very nice actually, box set of the American ones, and that's that's great because there's like seven films, and you get the the Japanese dub and the American oh, dub right. in each of those, which is a, a very nice package. And you get to see some of the kind of repackagings that they did when it crossed to America, like Godzilla versus Mothra. Mothra is probably a monster that, that people who have just dipped their toes into Godzilla water might actually have heard of. It's it's a like giant the, butterfly thing. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> the other somehow that's that's the other iconic Toho monster. Godzilla and Mothra face off, but it comes to America and they've retitled it Godzilla versus the Thing. <laughs> and if you look at the old kind of drive-in posters for it, it shows Godzilla standing next to a question mark with a load of tentacles behind it. <laughs> So, so I thought, well, I've, I've got to watch this, really. And like, there's, there's these bits where they're pointing to a gigantic moth and going, "Look, it's the thing," <laughs> and then pointing at these two caterpillars and going, "Look, Mothra." <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of the American dubs, I mean, the American dub of the original Godzilla is absolutely terrible. I say that with with some affection because what they've done is they've dropped Raymond Burr into it. Um, he, he of Ironside fame. Parachuted in. Basically, they've just kind of filmed extra scenes, which are mainly of him stood next to a translator going, what was that? What did he say? And my, my particular favourite, my Japanese is a little rusty. So basically, couldn't they just have dubbed it? <laughs> I love the idea of a giant Raymond Burr as well, the size of Godzilla, <laughs> poking his head in. So uh, you've mentioned obviously having the DVDs there. How much Godzilla merch if we can use a technical term. How much Godzilla merch do you own, would you say? Really not that much, and that is just a question of availability as well. I think the best one I've got is I've got a, a plush Godzilla. I, I mean, I know they make kind of plush versions of most things, but I, I was still a bit confused to see a plush Godzilla, I must say. Is that not just a dinosaur? Well, d- d- there's kind of subtle differences. I mean, your standard dinosaur is usually green. Godzilla is generally presented as a, as a grey colour. I mean, really? At least in the early yeah, films. Anytime I've seen Godzilla, it's green. Dark greenish. Yeah. Pea, I, pea I, I think that this is the trouble. It's a bit like Incredible Hulk, where it, he, he was demonstrably grey mm. for a while, 
but people remember the green one more. So once again, yeah, it's a it's a disappointing collection from from uh, talking. Po- I've got like a couple of nineties Godzillas and Mecha Godzillas, a couple of wind ups from around that period as well, which all came with their own little to scale army men and tanks, which I thought was quite a nice touch. Yeah. How much actually is there unreleased? Unreleased in Britain, like I say, everything but two. So you're looking at a very meaty part of thirty movies there. And how many of those thirty movies are shit? Well, <laughs> I mean, I'll be refreshingly frank. About about this. I touched upon Scrappy-Doo earlier, and certainly Son of Godzilla may be for aficionados only. It got worse from there. It got, it got, got worse than better. Son of Godzilla. <laughs> oh my. It did briefly get better. There was They went from Son of Godzilla, if I remember rightly, they went from that to Destroy All Monsters. But the, the ones after, there was Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, which was made by... Already a winner. The original producer was sidelined, and this whole new production team came in and did it in like a psychedelic style with an environmental message (laughs) and kind of a psychedelic animation and a kind of a hippie song I think is the best way to put it (laughs) um, I'm trying to work out whether it's like the Japanese equivalent of Donovan the original producer came back came back after illness saw the film and told the director you have killed Godzilla and you'll never work for Toho again now, and, now um, Toho presumably is the studio that made all. Uh, these, sorry, yes, know. Toho Studios. That from there, from the Smog Monster one, you get Godzilla's Revenge, which is actually all about a latchkey kid living in Tokyo, learning to uh, stand up to his bullies. Basically, when he dreams, he dreams he's the friend of Manila, who is the aforementioned son of Godzilla. They conduct conversations in the Dreamland in, uh, in Monster Island in English. Monster Island. Is, in some in some ways it's even more psychedelic than Godzilla vs. the Swamp Monster. There is that one. And the two after that, Godzilla vs. Giga and Godzilla vs. Megalon, are just bad because they've got no budget, they reuse kind of stock footage, uh, the new monsters are, are poorly conceived and I don't know, they're just poor in general. And did you say that's mainly where people get their sort of impression now of Godzilla as being exactly that cheap sets and Obviously, people in rubber suits smooshing cardboard houses. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I do fear that's definitely the case. I think it's uh, Godzilla vs. Megalob, which is basically agreed to be the series Nadir, is also the most viewed one in America, I think, or the second most viewed one in America. It got picked up by a lot of cable channels due to its uh, kind of cheapness to uh. get hold of. They had a fantastic poster campaign which featured Godzilla and Megalon, each standing on one of the twin towers of the World Trade Center. Oh, that, 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 that's always a winner. And that, that apparently pulled the crowds in. And immediately after that, they perked up with Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla and Terror of Mechagodzilla, which I think were the, the 20th anniversary kind of celebration films, to the point where they literally have, have quite obviously gone sod this. And Terror of Mechagodzilla, for instance, is the only Godzilla film that has naked boobs in. What I like about Terror of Mechagodzilla, actually, is if not my favourite, then one of my favourite movies in the whole canon, is that it stands up as a great B-movie. Mm. Even if you ignore Godzilla being in it, the iconic monster being in it, if it was just any other three monsters and the same storyline and the same kind of gore and guns and aliens and so on and so forth, then it would still be a cracking B-movie. And I'm assuming the mecha part means there is a giant robot Godzilla as well. 
Yes, there is, Excellent. which is which is all kinds of awesome as you as you can imagine. It sounds wicked. So obviously, we sort of mentioned that there are a number of less than perfect Godzilla films. Has that ever sort of transposed itself to you being sort of teased a bit for being a Godzilla fan, or has it always sort of had a bit of a you know a sheen of cool? Uh, I would say it's had a sheen of cool. Yeah, the thing with the Godzilla films is there's a whole different kind of classification. It's it's more of a Japanese thing to do, if you see what I mean. And, yeah. um, kind of, it, it, it's alongside. I know this is a kind of geekery in itself, but it, it kind of goes more hand in hand with anime and manga and obscure Japanese bands, obscure Japanese computer games, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of more in the profile of a Japanophile than a, a straight up kind of film or, or comic nerd or something like that. And because of that, it kind of comes away reasonably scot free. Yeah. And there's also the fact that not many people know much about Godzilla except for, like you say, the guy in the rubber suit. So I just generally tend to get patted on the head and left in the corner if that one ever comes out. It's not the most kind of dangerous of my geek devices. <laughs> And you and you and you I'd watch it. I was about to call him a misunderstood filmmaker uh, is best known for but I mean damn it he did like those jokes so uh, it, it does does bear mention so for your non-jug informed <laughs> in the audience who is Russ Meyer? well Russ Meyer is an uh, American director um, of the um, 60s and 70s predominantly uh, who produced a a lot of uh, kind of B-movie type films, um, some of which were more serious than others, and pretty much all of which featured uh, well-proportioned ladies uh, in various states of undress. Smashing, I was a winner. Uh, and the reason uh, we've brought this up is because you're currently going uh, through a marathon of all of his films, is that correct? Um, yeah, yeah. Now, actually, I, I must qualify this with it doesn't include... Uh, his fame, famed serious film, which is called, um, I think it's called, it's either called Seven Minutes or Seven Seconds. Because it's serious, I haven't paid any attention to it. And also, Quite because, right, it's, because it's serious, it's not in the boxed set. And also, not, if um, in seven seconds, you, you assume the door might turn up anytime. We're throwing them at there. Which is not, not. The mobs. Not what anybody wants, really. 